Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park as you make your way to your seat. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles and let's turn to John. Uh, we are in the last chapter of John and this is our last sermon on our series through the Gospel of John. I don't hear any amen, so that's a good thing. <laughs> Let me pray for us and ask the Lord to, to really reveal truth to us and stir our hearts and our affections for Him. Our Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your incredible mercy and grace. Your love that you have lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is who we are. You have adopted us into your family. We were once enemies, sinners, children under wrath, and now we are your sons and daughters. We are saints, part of your family and your kingdom, your body. And Lord, as we approach your word, can you speak to us? Can you open up our ears, our hearts, our minds? Can you teach us wondrous things from your instruction? As we look at the story of how you restored Peter and how you commissioned him to follow you and shepherd your people, Lord, can we learn what it means to follow you? And can we be able to honestly ask this question, will we follow you? And Lord, those who are following you, can you help them to be more committed in their following of you? And those that are not following you, Lord, can you show them the worth and the beauty of following you? Because you are leading us to the path of life as you've taken us from the path of destruction. So help us to understand those concepts. Help us to behold you and be overcome by you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Uh, we are in John 21, uh, verse 1, and so a little bit of context. So last week, uh, Jesus appeared to his disciples, and really what we saw is we saw the disciples move from grief-stricken, cowering in fear to now fixing their gaze on the resurrected Savior. We saw how they moved from unbelief to believing as they were filled with peace and joy because the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And so John reminds us, like, the reason why he wrote his account of the gospel of Jesus Christ was to invoke fear. He says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. And so the greatest application question that we can ask, that, that John is asking us in this text is, do I believe or am I still believing? And so he kind of gave us an example of what genuine faith looks like. He shows us Thomas's confession of Christ. And we saw his confession was not just an embracing of truth, of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished, but it's also followed by a commitment. 
And I think that principle is very important that we're going to unpack today. That believing is not just embracing truth, but it's followed by a commitment. Because what we're going to see in the final chapter, we're going to see Jesus telling Peter twice to follow me. And this phrase, following me, helps us to understand what, it's, what it means to believe in him. You see, following Jesus and believing in Jesus cannot be separate. You cannot have one without the other. Because if you truly believe in him, then what will you do? You'll follow him. Because Jesus is the Savior. And he calls us from a path of destruction that leads to death. And he calls us to a path of life that leads to eternal life. And again, we're faced with a question. And the question today that we've got to answer is, will I follow Jesus? And in our text, really what we're going to see, or I'm going to hope to try and show you, is here's a clear picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So let's look at John chapter 21, verse 1. 21 verse 1 says this after this Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the sea of Tiberias he revealed himself this way Simon Peter Thomas called twin Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee Zebedee's sons and two others of his disciples were together I'm going fishing Simon Peter said to them we're coming with you they told him they went out and got into the boat but that night they caught nothing when daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the other side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciples, one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish. And when they got out and land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Some of the fish you've just caught, bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask them, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So this story paints a picture. And let me try my best to show you the picture that it is painting. So as the disciples were waiting for Jesus' instruction on what is next, they kind of find themselves kind of just hovering around, wondering what to do. And like many of us, we can't sit still. And when we're waiting, what do we end up doing? We end up occupying ourselves with certain things. And that's exactly what Peter does. He is tired of just waiting for the next line of instruction. So he decides, hey, let's go ahead and catch some fish. Let's hop in a boat. 
All the other disciples that are always ti- also tired of waiting said, yes, let's have at it. And we find out in this story is that they've been fishing all night and they did not catch a single thing. Now, for many of us, we read the story and we think that's normal, right? Because most of us, if you go fishing, you are a hobbyist. In other words, you don't fish for a living. So when you go out fishing, what happens? You either catch fish or you don't get a single bite and you bring your kids along and you tell them that's just life. But remember, these weren't hobbyist fishermen. They were professionals. Remember before their calling? They were fishing. In other words, that's what they did for a living. They were experts. They made their living on the sea. In other words, they knew the water. They knew the time to fish. They knew where to fish. And yet they find themselves doing what they are an expert in And they're not catching a single thing. And you can imagine, not only is the frustration boiling up because what they once did for a living, now they can't seem to succeed. And now it seems very surprising. Like, why in the world are we not catching anything? We grew up on the water. We know all the spots. Sure, we've been gone for Jesus for for three years, but that didn't change anything. And something that they were good at. Something that could come easy to them now seems frustrating, unproductive, unfruitful, and unsuccessful. And so in their exhaustion and frustration, as the light of dawn peaked over the horizon, there was a man standing on the shore. Obviously, they did not know it was Jesus. And I love how Jesus phrases the question. He he says, friends, Jesus called to them. He doesn't say, did you guys catch anything? He's like, you don't have any fish, do you? Almost as if he's rubbing it in a little bit. And then he instructs them, hey, take your net and throw it on the other side of the boat. Now, again, just think about how insulting that instruction is. Because think with me here for a little bit. If you've been fishing all night... Do you think they tried it? Don't you think they moved their boat up and down the shoreline, casting the net on every single aisle of that boat? It's like your little child tell you, Daddy, we're not catching anything. Maybe we should throw the the, the bait on that side. And what do you do? You do in still no luck. But for some unknown reason, they decided to follow this strange man's advice maybe they were snickering a little bit like yeah we did not try that before and yet they did it and John tells us that all of a sudden the net was full and it was so full that they were unable to haul it in and in the process something clicked John put two and two together and recognized it was Jesus and tells Peter, hey, this is Jesus. And and Peter, without hesitating, just kind of put his clothes on, jumped out into the water, swam to the shore, leaving all his buddies behind and eventually made it to Jesus. All of them gathered and there Jesus invites them in to breakfast. Now, again, 
We looked at some of the details. That's good. But what is this story teaching us? What picture is Jesus painting us that's going on? I think, first of all, it is a picture of the disciples following Jesus, where he makes them fishers of men. And the harvest of fish before them is abundant. However, they cannot follow Jesus and be fishers of men and rely on their own strength and their own expertise. When Jesus told them, I will make you fishers of men, they're probably thinking to themselves, great, that's easy. We're professional fishermen. How easy could it be fishing for men? We know what to do. We know when to do it. We know how to do it. The principles of fishing for fish and fishing for men must be the same thing. And yet, we see a picture of them struggling, unable to catch not a single thing. And this must have been perplexing, frustrating. And John shows us it wasn't until they relied on Jesus' instruction that they catch anything. And again, it wasn't Jesus' instruction that gave them the results, but rather it was Jesus. And I do think it is interesting. The, the area where the disciples were the most unfruitful in were the area that they were the most confident in. The area where they felt was their strength and their expertise. They're professional fishermen. They are supposed to excel in it. And yet Jesus used this area of confidence and expertise and abilities and strength, and he taught them a vital lesson. Following Jesus means putting confidence in him and not in your own ability. And so if you're taking notes, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is the story that John is painting us? Following Jesus means putting confidence in Christ and not in yourself. Regardless of our gifts and our abilities and our strength, we are unable to do anything apart from the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. And for so many of us, we can relate to the disciples. There are certain things that we feel like we are really good in. We're very gifted. It is our strength and we have a tendency to put our confidence in ourselves instead of on Jesus Christ. And Jesus was teaching them, look, you might be a professional fisherman, but let me show you, you're not going to catch a darn fish because you're not that great. You have to rely on me. You have to put your confidence in me. And without me, you will not be able to do a single thing. And what that means for us is that if we follow Christ, our confidence has to be in Christ, in him alone, not in ourselves. And, and what I mean by that is we can't say, you know what, following Jesus is easy because, you know what, I'm a pretty disciplined person. Just tell me what to do and I'm just gonna discipline myself in doing these things. I'm a pretty smart person. I can figure out all the, the intrinsicities of Jesus and all the theological complexities of Jesus with my mind and my strength and my will. I will be able to discipline myself and follow Jesus to the T. And what the story is telling us is, yeah, you can't. You're going to end up fishing all night and be frustrated and unproductive and perplexed. Why? 
because you cannot put your confidence in yourself. Your confidence must be in Jesus Christ. And if we follow Christ, we need to rely on his strength and his ability. And he is faithful to provide for us exactly what we need and when we need it. And again, I think there's a reason why the disciples did not catch anything. It wasn't because they were in the wrong spot. It wasn't because they did anything wrong. They didn't catch anything because Jesus didn't allow them to catch anything. He didn't ordain for them to catch anything. And he did it so he could display his power in their lives. And for many of us, as we follow Jesus, we might find ourselves entering into a season where we have similar frustrations, where we feel unproductive and we feel unsuccessful and we feel unfruitful. We might find ourselves in an area where we're frustrated and we don't see the fruits and it might be days, weeks, months, and even years where we're wondering what in the world is happening? Why are we so unfruitful in the Christian life? And yet, there's a purpose to it because it's in those times where we find ourselves unfruitful, unsuccessful, unproductive, the Lord really reveals to us our true object of faith. Like like one of the lessons the Lord is personally teaching me is am I content with being unproductive and unfruitful? And if you know me really well, you know I'm a type A person and I have a list and if I'm not checking that list, if I'm not accomplishing, if I'm not winning, if I'm not successful, it drives me crazy and yet... Those things are not dependent on my abilities and strength and my performance because there are certain things that are outside of my control. And I find myself in a season of frustration and yet the Lord has ordained that season of frustration because it's revealing to me, am I truly trusting Him? Do I truly believe that He is sovereign and in control? And this is what he reveals to these disciples. And it is by his grace that he reveals to us, what are we truly trusting in? Are we really relying on ourselves for fruitfulness or are we relying on Christ for fruitfulness? Is our confidence uh, in our expertise and in our abilities or is it in Jesus? So the first thing we learn from this story as following Jesus means putting confidence in him, not in yourself. And that is something we have to daily do. We have to fight that because what is our natural tendency to? Put confidence in ourselves. That's how you've been trained. That's how you've been raised. The whole world's been telling you to believe in who? Believe in yourself. If you put your mind to it and you work really hard, what's going to happen? You're able going to do it. You're able going to, you're going to be able to accomplish it. And then you grow up and you realize sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. And what the Lord does graciously is saying, no, your confidence can't be in yourself. Has to be in me. Let's move on. Jesus. So Jesus invites these disciples to breakfast. Now again, in the first century, to invite anybody to breakfast, to, 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 to lunch, or, or to supper is a deep, intimate relationship. Jesus wants fellowship with these disciples. 
And this breakfast is going to be a breakfast they'll never forget. Look at verse 15. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to them, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told them. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly I tell you, when you were younger and you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. And he said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. Now, if we have to be honest, and I don't want to pick on Peter because I think all of us can relate to Peter, no disciple had more confidence in himself than, than Peter. On the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter pledged undying devotion to Jesus. He went as far as to claim that I will even lay down my life for you, Jesus. I will never deny you. I will never betray you. I will never abandon you because I love you so much. Actually, I love you more than all these other people in the room. They might abandon you, but I will never do that. And Jesus says, oh yeah? Let me tell you what, buddy. You're going to deny me three times. And what happened? He denied Jesus three times and you can imagine how that must have shattered his confidence the very night he said he would never do it he ended up doing it peter is having breakfast with jesus and he must have been painfully aware of his failure feeling his shame of sin and regret probably having maybe a difficult time looking jesus in the eyes and they're sitting around a charcoal fire and the last time he stood around a charcoal fire, what happened? He denied Jesus. And so probably the, 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 the fumes and the smell of the charcoal fire probably reminded him of his greatest failure when he denied Jesus three times. Peter was broken. And Peter had to be restored. And that is exactly what Jesus did. And the very first question that Jesus asked Peter is this, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? In other words, Simon, do you love me more than these other men love me? Now, if you think about it, that's kind of a weird question because like Jesus, they're, they're right there. But when Jesus says, do you love me more than these? That is exactly what Peter put his confidence in. He put his confidence in the fact that he loves Jesus more than these other people. And that's why he'll never deny Jesus. And so Jesus says, do you love me more than these? 
And look at how Peter responded. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Notice the humility. He doesn't say, yes, Lord, I love you more than these men. He says, yes, Lord. And what does he appeal to? He doesn't appeal to the amount of love that he has for Jesus that's more than the others. But what does he appeal to? He appeals to his his knowledge. He appeals to Jesus' knowledge. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. We don't even see a hint of self-righteousness in Peter's response. The only thing that Peter can appeal to is not the strength of his love and the confidence of his love, but rather in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And twice, Jesus repeats the question, Do you love me? And twice, Peter says the same thing. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the third time, he says, Lord, you know everything. I can't hide anything from you. I can't fool you. My confidence is not in myself anymore. I am a broken man. The only hope I can put is in you and in your knowledge because you know everything about me and you even know how much I love you. And that's enough. And in the restoration work, Jesus shows him mercy. In other words, he gives him what he doesn't deserve. When somebody like that on your team messes up that greatly, would you restore them immediately to the position they had? No. What would you normally do? You would put them on probation. Here are some requirements I want you to fulfill, and I want you to work your way up to fulfilling these requirements. And yet every time after Peter in his humility says, yes, Lord, you you know everything. You know that I love you. I can't fool you anymore. Every time Jesus commissions him and says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, shepherd my people. In other words, Jesus doesn't condemn him. He doesn't shame him. But in mercy, he lifts Peter up and he restores Peter with the commissioning of feeding and shepherding Christ's sheep. And so we learn that following Jesus not only means putting our confidence in Christ, not in ourselves, but the second thing, if you're taking notes, following Jesus actually means experiencing the mercy of Christ. Who would have thought in order to follow Jesus, what does it require? Experiencing the mercy of Christ. I guarantee you that moment around the charcoal fire The idea of mercy and grace wasn't just a concept he heard of as a little boy, but rather it was something that he experienced. A traitor, a denier, a failure, a self-righteous, arrogant, confident man that is broken. And all he can say is, you know everything, Lord. And the Lord in his mercy commissions him and says, go and be a shepherd of my people. See, what motivates Peter to shepherd God's people was his love for Jesus. But what qualifies Peter to shepherd God's people is the mercy of Christ he experienced and the receiving of that commissioning. See, Peter could not minister the gospel of grace 
to people without firsthand experiencing the grace of Jesus. And it is in that restoration of Peter that he firsthand gained the knowledge and understanding of what mercy means. You want to follow Jesus? You have to experience his mercy first. And we see Peter fulfilling that commission as he instructs fellow elders. He writes in 1 Peter 5, verse 1 to 4, he says, I exhort the elders among you as fellow elders and witness to the suffering of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing it out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Notice the humility and how he instructs shepherds. Shepherd God's people, not so you can be powerful, not so you can make lots of money and be an authority, but actually do it in humility. Because who are you serving under? The chief shepherd. Don't do it lording it over them, but do it eagerly because the chief shepherd has commissioned you, do it faithfully, and he will give you the unfading crown of glory. Now, after Jesus commissions Peter, he, in a sense, tells Peter what's going to happen to him. Basically, Peter is going to end up dying. And it really, it should come no surprise to us that when we follow a crucified Savior, that means there will be a cross for us. And that's what Jesus tells Peter. A time is coming where he will be bound and he'll be taken against his wishes, and basically he'll be killed via crucifixion. And actually by the time John wrote this, this, this account, Peter has already died. He's already glorified God via crucifixion, uh, probably under the emperor Nero. And what is remarkable, and that to me really stood out, is the fact that Peter would shepherd God's people for three decades with that hanging over his head. Can you imagine me say, hey, go follow Jesus. Oh yeah, by the way, this is gonna happen to you. (laughs) And as you're shepherding God's people in the back of your mind, you're like, ooh, I don't know about that one. Which leads us to, to the second point, the third point, sorry. Following Jesus, if you're taking notes, means we're committed not to our own comfort, but the cross of Christ. Following Jesus means we're committed not to our own comfort, but to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me wrap up the text and kind of unpack this last point and we'll do application. Verse 20 after Peter was restored, heard the bad news, and then Jesus says, follow me. Verse 20 says, so Peter turned around and saw the disciples Jesus loved, following them, the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? 
Verse 20 says, 22 says, If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, What is that to you? As for you, what must he do? Follow me. So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that this disciple would not die. Yet, Jesus did not tell him that he would not die. But if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And there are so many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. See, we just learned that following Jesus means that we're committed not to our own comfort, but the cross of Christ. And Jesus tells Peter what's going to happen to him. He's going to die. And obviously Peter is curious, well, what's going to happen to John if that's going to happen to me? And Jesus, in a nice way, say, focus here, buddy. You, you, you follow me. What is it to you? But there is a principle we can learn. What will happen to Peter is determined by who? By Jesus, God. What will happen to John is determined by who? By Jesus. Which means, what will happen to us is determined by who? Determined by Jesus. And we need to be prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel because the call that we have of following him is a call of picking up our cross, a willingness to die, being committed not to our comfort and our security and our safety, but ultimately to the cross of Christ. And the reality of it is, not all of us are going to suffer in the same way. Some of you will suffer more than others. Some of you might not suffer whatsoever. But the calling is this. Follow Christ. And they will be suffering, suffering of some type. And I think the only way that can prepare us for any kinds of suffering is not to live in denial or to try to spin it in a way, but rather call it for what it is and try to see suffering from God's perspective. Let's look at Peter and John here, since Jesus is talking about their suffering. Where's Peter's suffering going to come from? Who's determining it? Jesus, the Lord is. And the reason why, for some of us, I know we don't want to admit that suffering comes from God because we, A, we don't want to make God look bad and people think that God is not a good God. But I'm telling you, that's one of the worst mistakes you can make. Because here's why. If we don't want to admit that suffering is from the Lord, then we're almost implying that suffering is some unfortunate accident with no purpose. But if we, from our text, can see that suffering is determined by our Lord, what does it mean now? Suffering serves a purpose. Now that does not mean we'll fully understand the scope of the purpose in our suffering. And we're not called to fully understand it. We're called to endure it and to trust that it serves a purpose. We're called, just like Peter, follow me. Now when Peter heard the news... Yeah, you're, you're going to die. Crucifixion. What, was he afraid, cared, what did he care about? What's going to happen to everybody else? And Jesus like, no. Focus on me here. 
Peter's been ministering for three decades. And you can imagine that must be in the back of his mind. The first time he got arrested, here it comes. Oh, okay, not then. Second time, here, here it comes. Later on in his life, when he's older and wiser, this is what he writes about suffering. The very same Peter that was restored and received God's Christ's mercy, was commissioned and was committed to following Jesus. This is what he writes. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to 13. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Don't be shocked when suffering comes. Instead, do what? Rejoice as you share in the suffering of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when His glory is revealed. So when suffering comes, what do you say? Don't be shocked, but do what? Rejoice in it. Then we skip over to verse 19. In verse 19, he says this, So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. What is Peter saying? We're suffering according to whose will? According to God's will. As we entrust ourselves to the creator who is faithful and good. Here we see an example of the life of Peter, a man who relied on his own expertise, his own strength, his own ability. His confidence was in himself and loving Jesus and following Jesus and will never deny Jesus. And he falls flat down. And in mercy, Jesus comes alongside of him, restores him, enables him to follow him, even to the point of death where Peter, as an old man, can write to the people he shepherded. He says, hey, guys, don't be shocked when suffering comes. It's not unusual but rather rejoice in it that you get to share in the joy of the suffering of Christ. For it is determined by God's will. So what you need to do is cling to the faithful creator, for he is doing what is good. Let's do application. The Christian life is one sense a difficult life, in another sense, a simple life. The Christian life is difficult because there's a part of us, we're still sinful, and we still live in a cursed world. But the part that it's simple is that Christianity can be summed up with one sentence. Follow me. That is, follow Christ. And all of us, believer or non-believer, are confronted with this question. Will you follow him? That's a fairly simple question. And yet is a difficult question. Because what that means for you in order to answer that question is, first of all, you are confronted. What is my confidence in? In me? We're in Christ. 
have I experienced the mercy of Christ. In other words, in order to experience the mercy of Christ, first of all, I have to recognize I need mercy. I am sinful, rebellious against God, and I deserve wrath and judgment, and yet God did not give me what I deserved. And then the last part of trying to answer that question is you're confronted Am I going to be committed to my own comfort or to the cross of Christ, regardless of the cost? And Peter says at the end of his life, I know it is hard, but it is worth it because think about that unfading crown of glory. You get to rejoice in the suffering with Christ. It is part of God's will for your life. And his will is good and pleasing. It is for your good and for his glory. So keep on following him. Let me pray for us. And then I want to give you a moment to reflect on that question. Lord, we are confronted by a very profound and yet simple question. Will we follow you? And Lord, just like Peter, you know everything. And even if we say yes, but we don't mean it, you know it. Lord, help us to be open and honest. May your spirit convict us. Help us not to avoid asking the question and answering it, but may it be confronted. May this question kind of resound in our minds and our hearts throughout the week. Will we follow you? I just want to give you a moment right now and just wrestle with that question. Will you follow Jesus? And as you're wrestling with that question, everybody is at different stages in that question. Maybe for some of you, like, what's your confidence in? Like, what's your hope in? Have you experienced the Lord's mercy in your life? What are you committed to? Your comfort or the cross of Christ? And as much as we try to line those two things up, the reality of it is they will never line up. And as you're wrestling with trying to answer those questions, can just ask the Lord to help you to be able to answer those questions. To help you realize the incredible mercy that you've received. That the cross is way more precious than any comfort that you can obtain on this earth. The cross of Christ is way more enduring 
than any comfort or luxury you can experience now. So maybe ask the Lord to help you have the right perspective. Lord, help us to be open and honest and answer these questions. And Lord, at this time, help us in answering this question. Let our focus not be on us, but let our focus be on you. Your worth, your mercy and grace that you've lavished on us. As we get to sit at the table Again, this table is, is a reminder of the incredible mercy that we've experienced, that we've received. The Bible tells us that before Jesus Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible describes us as children of wrath, enemies of God. That's who we were. And this is the Lord's table. And we are invited to come and sit at the table. Not because we have changed our status. Not because we have done anything or brought anything to the table other than our sin. But we're invited to this table because of what Christ has done. He is the one that has changed our status. He is the one who made us alive who took us as children of wrath and made us children of God. Enemies, friends, sons and daughters. And we get to sit at the table not because uh, we have to prove anything or or, or we're under, um, we kind of have to show our worth in it. But we're invited freely because of what Christ has done for us. And so many times in this life, I don't know about you, we're quick to forget the mercy and grace that he's lavished on us. And what this table reminds us week in and week out is we've received something we did not deserve. We did deserve punishment. We did deserve to be exiled, abandoned, and taken away from the presence of God. Yet God dwelt among us and brought us in and said, come and sit at my table as my sons and daughters. How? Because of what Christ has done for us. He lived a life we could not live, and he died the death we were supposed to die. It was his body that was given to us. It was his blood that was shed for us. And all we do is respond in faith by receiving it, receiving that mercy that we need. Believing that what he's done for us is enough. And then we encourage one another. Keep on believing. Keep on following Christ. What an incredible Savior we have. There's nothing to add to this table. It is finished. And this table is also a shadow of the great feast that is waiting for us when he comes back and makes everything new. 
So let's go ahead and distribute these elements. And as we distribute these elements, I want you to reflect and meditate on the mercy and grace you have received, the work that Christ has accomplished on your behalf. And you're simply receiving the benefits of that by faith. Did everybody receive the elements? I just love this verse that we read during the assurance portion of our service. John 1, verses 12 to 14. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we've received grace upon grace. Praise the Lord that he came, he dwelt among us. He gave his life for us so that we can be made children of God. His body given to you, eat it in remembrance of him. His blood was shed for you. Drink it in remembrance of him. Lord, we thank you for the mercy that we have received. We've received grace upon grace. Lord, help us not just to understand it intellectually, but help us to experience it and just be overwhelmed by the fact of what you've done for us. Strengthen us that we may follow you diligently. If there's any confidence that we've placed in ourselves, make it known to us and remove that so we may trust in you and you alone. Lord, and help us to see the beauty and worth of the cross that I cannot be compared to the comforts that this earth promises and it's only fleeting. Help us to fix our eyes on you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship our King.